0: Do you know when I was uh, young, uh, to earn a little bit of uh, extra pocket money, about twice a year I would look after an, a retired couple's uh, pet dog. And uh, that was while they went on holidays. And uh, it was a very big dog. I actually can't remember what breed it was, but I just remember it was really big. It used to eat so much. And uh, they, they would leave it at their house and I was to drop in at least once a day just to feed it and uh, check that everything was okay. Now, that was a huge responsibility, which almost ended in disaster one day uh, because it happened that as I was opening the gate to enter this property, this massive dog just ran up to me, bowled me over, ran through the gate, down the road, around the corner, and out of sight. And I had to spend the next few hours searching for this lost dog. And uh, the whole time I was thinking that, you know, it's going to get run over or it's gonna be lost forever. It was so stressful, it was so frustrating. Uh, I've never really wanted to own a dog myself as a result. Um, But I start with this story because uh, 1 Samuel 9, well, the passage that we're looking at today, uh, this passage, it's about looking for lost animals. Uh, In this case, lost donkeys. Uh, Did you notice that the mention of donkeys is so often you would actually think it was the main point of the passage and uh, in some ways it is, um, although we'll have to do a bit of work to get to that. But, uh, but what you see is that, you know, as stressful and frustrating as it is looking for lost animals, uh, lost donkeys, in this case, what we see in this passage is that the one looking for these donkeys, Saul, he ends up finding a lot more than he could ever have imagined when he set out that day. Uh, ends up finding a kingdom And uh, the way the story is told, though, we actually see that the main player is not Saul. Uh, It's not Samuel either. It's certainly not the donkeys. Uh, The main player is actually the Lord. Okay, here we see God, he's working out his purposes in the lives of his people. And uh, the first uh, eight chapters of 1 Samuel have really established the point that God is their king. Okay, that he's the king above all other kings. And as their king, he's the one who is always in control. Even when things seem to go amiss, uh, God is always in control. He always brings about his good purposes and te- teaching his people along the way. And we see that in this passage. That this passage really turns the spotlight into God's control of this situation and the purposes that God is... Uh, bringing about for his people. And so there's three things I want to highlight here, three things that really the passage turns the spotlight on. God's providence, God's purposes, and God's tenderness. Okay, so let's look at those three things. Uh, First, God's providence. And uh, we see that from verse 1 and onwards. Uh, We're introduced to this man named Kish. Uh, Kish was a wealthy fellow from the smallest tribe of, Benjam- uh, of Israel, which was the tribe of Benjamin. And he has a son named Saul, who uh, we're told was a uh, good-looking bloke, uh, very tall, head and shoulders above everyone else. And we're told on a certain day out on the farm that uh, one day these donkeys go missing. And uh, you know, Kish, he wakes up and he's like, where are those donkeys? And uh, you know, that, that would have been a really big deal because donkeys back then, they were used to cart stuff around, uh, they were kind of like the, um, you know, the, the workhorse. Uh, you know, the equivalent today would be, um, I don't know, where's Andrew, he, you know, he wakes up one morning, the, the Ute has gone, how's he going to get to work, how's he going to cart his tools around? That's the idea here, it, it's a big deal. And so he sends uh, Saul and a servant off to look for the donkeys. Uh, they travel across the country. They go over hills, through valleys, searching everywhere. Uh, but they can't find the donkeys. And they are gone so long that they run out of food. <clears throat> and Saul starts to think, you know, Dad's going to be more worried about me than he is about the donkeys. And, uh, you know, and we're all sitting here uh, this morning thinking why are we hearing a big long story about lost donkeys? I mean, who cares about donkeys? Why is this even in here? Isn't this book about, uh, you know, this massive transition in the life of Israel? Why are we getting a detailed story about donkeys? And uh, so we keep reading on and we get to verse 6 and we realise that there's a bit of a turn here where it just so happens that this quest for lost donkeys has brought them into the vicinity of, of the city where Samuel happens to be. And the servant of Saul, he just so happens to remember, ah, hang on a minute, there's a bloke, a man of God, who uh, we can probably ask and and maybe he'll tell us which way to go to find the donkeys. And so they think, okay, let's do that. So they start heading towards that city. As they're walking towards the city, it just so happens that a group of young uh, women Uh, are coming along and uh, they they ask them, do you know where Samuel is? And boy, what great timing. They have just seen Samuel and so they're able to direct Saul and the servant directly to where Samuel is. And so now we're starting to see, okay, so there is some uh, point to this. Uh, Samuel is the main character in the book so far. So we can see it's working out. But then when we get to verse 15, we come to realise that losing donkeys it was not some random event. It was not just uh, some uh, you know, coincidence that, that, that happened to bring them, uh, Saul and, and his servant, to Samuel. But we actually see that all of this has been orchestrated by God. Every little detail orchestrated by God behind the scenes to bring Saul to this point. So let's read verse 15. This is really, uh, verse 15 and 16 really the main um, verses of the passage. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And so you put all of this together, as the passage does, and you realize the reason there is such an interest in these lost donkeys is because they are the very means that God uses to bring Saul to this point where he can be anointed as the first king of Israel. And that is quite amazing to think about. Like verse 16, God actually says, I will send to you a man. Now, how does God do that? Okay, does he send angels with trumpets announcing, Saul, you must come uh, to, to Samuel? No, no, what is, how does God do it? The way he sends for Saul is through this very mundane and most likely very frustrating search for lost donkeys. And do you know there's a word that theologians use to describe that way of God working? It's this word, providence. Have you ever heard that word before, providence? I know there's a city named Providence uh, somewhere in America, but, uh, but God's providence. This is, what do we mean when we talk about God's providence? Well, that, that's actually a catechism question. What is God's providence? Uh, I only thought of that because we had to do it um, just at the end of the last year. But God's providence It's he's completely holy and wise uh, and powerful, preserving, and governing every creature and every action. Okay, I'll say that again. God governs every creature and every action. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how God interacts with all of the little details of life? That's what his providence is all about. It's saying that everything that takes place in the world, including mundane things, Even frustrating things like searching for a lost donkey. All of that happens under God's direction. That's what we mean by um, providence. So random events are actually not random from the perspective of God. They're actually all under His control. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will all things. That really does include all things. Uh, Proverbs uh, 16 verse 9 actually tells us that even the, the decisions that we make are in some mysterious way governed by God. Okay, that doesn't mean we are not responsible for our decisions. They're still our decisions, but in some mysterious way, somehow they're governed by God. Uh, I'll read the proverb, it says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And you can see that in this story of lost donkeys. You know, the donkeys, they wander off, that's under God's direction. But even when the servant of Saul says, Aha, why don't we go and ask Samuel? Somehow, In some mysterious way, even that was governed by God. <clears throat> to, bring, <clears throat> to bring all his, uh, his purpose uh, together. And, you know, this is actually something that we all, we all kind of know, you know, we get that, because we even acknowledge it every single day. Well, everyone here who has the habit of giving thanks for a meal every day, have you ever thought about what does it mean to give thanks for a meal? When we thank God for a meal that's before us, what are we actually doing? We're acknowledging that this meal comes to us from God. But how does God provide that? Does he, does he make it appear out of nothing? Uh, does he send it to your door um, like a delivery service uh, from angels, like you know, on a little white fluffy cloud? Is that how God provides a meal for you? No, he does it how? Through a whole heap of mundane events. You know, like you, going to work, earning some money so that you can then go to the shops and buy something off a shelf and then go home and, and you know, put it all together and do what you're to do uh, to make it. Uh, and, then, and then before that, what does God do? He, he sends rain to water the ground so that grass can grow and so that cows can eat it and so that crops can grow. And he causes the farmer even to get out of bed at the right time so that it can all be harvested. And so look at this, here you are, about to eat a meal, you're giving thanks. Do you realize all of the little steps that have to have taken place for that meal to come about? There's a lot, a whole lot of what seems like just everyday happenings. And yet when you're giving thanks to God, you're acknowledging His providence. Okay, that He is the one who through all of those circumstances has brought about Uh, this provision for you. So that's God's providence. God's completely holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. Uh, One very helpful way of thinking about God's providence is to think about it like like an orchestra. So just uh, this week I noticed uh, the Sydney uh, Opera House, Uh, they unveiled this multi-million dollar renovation complete with you know, world-class acoustics. And the reason they spend so much money on that place is because they host some huge symphonies, you know, with, with uh, huge orchestras playing these symphonies. And uh, you think about all of those instruments all there together, all playing little tiny individual notes and half notes and quarter notes. Uh, all of these notes, you know, they're all, they all have to work together in such a way, so that all of these notes all come together to make a beautiful sound. And how does that happen? It's all under the direction of the conductor. Now, he's conducting all of these instruments, all of these little notes coming together to make a beautiful sound, and in some ways that is a picture of the way God organizes his world. Okay, there are so many little bits and pieces that all have to work together and the bible assures us that god is working through all things all according to his purpose he's like the conductor directing all things that's god's providence and so by its very nature god's providence is something that is happening all the time uh, and, and we we rarely stop to think about it you know we just take it for granted but sometimes in his word, God, he includes these little hints, like a story about lost donkeys, about that being the way that God raises up uh, the first king of Israel. And so whether it's something small like looking for a lost animal or something big like you know, a transition in a nation from going from being led by judges to being led by a king, all of it, every little step along the way, all directed by God according to his purpose. Now, just one other thing I want to say about um, God's providence, and we actually see it in this passage, is that you know, he tells us that everything is under his direction, and yet we don't always understand or have revelation from him about what he is actually doing in every little detail of Life circumstances. You know, only in very rare occasions does God actually tell us what the purpose of each event in life is actually about, what its actual purpose is. See, there's a difference between our lives and what happened that day with Saul looking for the donkey. And the difference is that on that day when Saul looked for donkeys, God spoke to Samuel and gave him a little insight into what was actually going on, that he was sending Saul to him. And that's important for us to think about because, you know, if we think about all the things that happen in our own lives, what is the purpose of any one event? Do we really know completely? Well, certainly not ahead of time because God hasn't told us. Uh, there's a sense in which we just have to trust that he is in control and he's directing things according to his purpose. <clears throat> and yet there is a sense in which we can look back on our lives. You know, hindsight is a very helpful thing because we can look back on our lives and every now and then we see times or we see a situation where, you know, we normally call it a coincidence. You know, what a coincidence. But when those, things, when those times happen, what are we seeing? Just a little hint that there is a purpose behind these things. You know that at the time we might have thought, you know, why is this happening in my life? And yet then we look back many years later and we realize, ah, now I can see what God was doing, how he was weaving his plan. One example I see in my own life was, um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, when I finished um, high school, I did a, um, went to uni and did an arts degree and uh, I finished the degree and graduated and uh, thought to myself, well, that was a big waste of time and money (laughs) because the job I ended up getting, I could have got without uh, having an arts degree. Uh, Anyway, 10 years later, um, I uh, went to theological college to um, become a minister. And when I was in theological college, I actually realized that one of the best ways to prepare for a theological course is actually an arts degree, because it's all um, essay-based, which is like the the course. And then I realized, boy, if it wasn't for that arts degree, I probably wouldn't have ever been been able to complete the the theological uh, degree. And so then you you realize, ah, so there was a purpose to that that arts degree. And and you know, I'm sure all of you can do that, where you can look back in your life and you realize now I get it, that's why it happened, because God has a plan, he's, he's working out His purpose in my life. And then of course there are other times when you look and you think, I have no idea how there could be any purpose behind that. And that's especially the case when you face uh, difficulties and uh, disappointments. And sometimes in life it seems like it's impossible that there could be any purpose in this event, especially in suffering. And yet even then, God in his word assures us that he is still in control. And he even promises that uh, for those who love him, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. And uh, one day, uh, we will get to look back from the perspective of eternity and see how all the little pieces fit together. But until then, what do we do? We trust Him. We trust that His providence is trustworthy because of who He is, the God, the good God who is working out all things according to His purpose. And there's actually a song that that captures this probably better than all of the stuff I've just said, (laughs) just in four lines. Uh, It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace behind a frowning providence. Faith sees a smiling face. It's just such a wonderful summary. That's how we should think of life. There's some providences that, you know, it seems like a frown, but when we know who's behind it all, faith sees a smiling face. That's God's face, of course. And so we can trust him. So that's the first thing, just laying out this idea of God's providence. Now, the second thing, though, that we see in the passage is uh, well, we see God's purpose. And uh, clearly God has a purpose in all of this, and the purpose, as he reveals, was to give Israel their first king, King Saul. And uh, you've got to remember that chapter 9 has in its background what happened in chapter 8. If you were here last week, we looked at that, where Israel, remember, they demanded a king like all the nations. And uh, they were saying uh, to Samuel, you know, give us a king. We want to be like the nations. And the Lord said to Samuel, fine, give them what they asked for. Now we see that Saul is that king. He's the king like all the nations, Uh, which, by the way, was not meant to be a good thing. Uh, That was just trying to be like the world. So Saul is the king that they've asked for. You can even see that hint of that in a couple of places here. Like, do you know Saul's name? He, Saul's name in Hebrew has this idea that it means, uh, it's like the, the, asked for, it's like the verb to ask, uh, Saul's name, it kind of looks like that. And so you see that hint, you know, the people asked for a king like all the nations, here he is, he is asked for. It's <laughs> uh, very clever. Um, but then there's another hint where, that Saul is this king like all the nations and that is in his appearance. Okay, whenever the Bible mentions someone's appearance, it only does that if there is some significance to the story. Uh, and uh, here we're told that Saul, it's almost like we're told that the best thing going for Saul was that he was good looking, you know, and, that, and that he was really tall, a head and shoulders above everyone else. And uh, that kind of matches what the people were after, because the people, they wanted a king like all the nations, you know, and a king like all the nations has to look impressive, while well, Saul fits that um, bill perfectly. Uh, he looked exactly what the people were after. Uh, trouble is, looks alone, and this might have um, some relevance, <laughs> uh, looks alone are uh, very shallow, and... Uh, you know, it's interesting that later on Saul is rejected because he really is a king like the nations. He's a worldly king, and when he is rejected, and God sends Samuel to find a replacement, and uh, Samuel he's looking at all of Jesse's sons. We'll look at this later on, but uh, and he's thinking, "Whoa, here, hang on, here's the one." When he sees the firstborn, and God says to Samuel, "Don't look on his appearance or on his height." For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Saul, we're told in this passage that he does get a new heart, but we need to understand that not as you know, being born again like the New Testament talks about, but rather a new heart as in a heart to lead, okay? a heart to, to fight uh, in the uh, battles that he'll have to fight. But really, the heart of Saul, as it will come to be revealed later on, is a worldly heart. A heart set on the things of the world. And uh, eventually that, Saul's true colours will, will shine through. And then the nation will experience the misery of what they asked for. They wanted a king like all the nations. They just wanted to be like the world. And eventually that will come about. And they'll see the emptiness of uh, seeking after the things of the world rather than seeking after the Lord. So they get the king they ask for, and yet at the same time, what we see in this passage is that even though the people had rejected God as king and wanted a replacement, God is not giving up his position as their king. Uh, did you notice whenever Saul is talked about It never says that he is going to be king in the passage. Did you notice that? When Saul was anointed, what did it say? Anoint him as prince. Or that word could be translated as leader over my people. And the reason it does that is because of what we've just seen in chapter 8. Now the people wanted a king to replace God. God is making it very clear that the king you're getting is not replacing me, but rather he will be under me. Okay, God's still the king. Those under him. <clears throat> uh, the king will be under him, under his authority. And we also see that in where uh, you know Samuel is the one who is supposed to keep Saul under the word of God, keep Saul accountable uh, to the word of God. Uh, Saul is to be accountable to um, the prophet. So there you go, it turns out while God is giving the people what they asked for in Saul, he wasn't setting up the kingship in the way that they asked. He would remain their king. And that was God's purpose, as it is in, in all of things. God is the king. Okay? One day that will all be seen, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's God's purpose. That's his purpose here. It's his purpose in all things, that one day everyone will see that he is the king. So the third thing we see then in this passage, I've looked at God's providence, God's purpose. Third thing is, we see is God's tenderness. God's tenderness. So have a look at verse 16 again in chapter 9, because this really is the key verse to the whole passage. Uh, God said to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people uh, from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me and then when Samuel saw Saul the Lord said to him here is the man of whom I spoke to you he it is who shall restrain my people so notice this four times God talks about Israel as my people you know, my people my people my people and we're told that God, you know, He hears the cries of His people. And He wants to do something about that. He wants to save them. Why are the people crying out? It's because the the threat of the Philistines is growing again. And the people are feeling that threat, and so they they cry out to God. And what does God do? He hears and he answers and he sends a Savior. In this case, he sends Saul, <laughs> amazingly, uh, the king that they asked for. Um, but you know what's so incredible about this? Is that chapter 8, in chapter 8, the Israelites had rejected God. They said, we don't want you to be king, we want a different king. And yet when they cry out to God in all of their fears about the threats around them, what does God do? Does he say, Oh, well, if you've given up on me, then too bad. You can fend for yourself. No, he hears their cry and he wants to save them. He wants to intervene. He wants to deliver them. That's just so incredible. And what, and what is so amazing about this is that the very king that God has given the people, really as a discipline, that same king is actually going to save them from the threat. Okay, which is amazing. God can do two things at once. I've said this before. God's very good at multitasking. So that in the very act of giving them the king that they want, which will turn out to be their a discipline, that same king will still deliver them from all of their fears. And so we're seeing here, this is what God is like. He, he is a God of compassion, a God of mercy. We're seeing his tenderness toward his people. And you see this over and over again in the Bible, uh, where where God He just loves to answer the cries of His people, even when His people go astray, even when they wander from Him, and yet in their misery cry out, "Lord, save me." God loves to answer that call. He loves to. He hears their cry and saves them. And you know, surely that's a comfort for you here today surely you find comfort in that, especially as you recognize in your own heart your tendency to go astray, your tendency to, to, to turn your back on God. And, and you know, if we know anything of our own foolishness, if we know anything of our own sin and how we so often fall short of God's glory, even as believers, you know, don't, don't you need to hear that? Don't you need to hear that whenever you cry out to God, He hears And he wants to save you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to bring you back. Now, when you hear God saying, my people, my people, my people, my people. If you belong to him through Christ, that's his heart towards you. That's how he looks at you. Uh, The Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, verse 7, it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward his people and his ears toward their cry. See, that's the tenderness of God. That's how he is for his people. And uh, when when we see that, when we see that God gives, well, he answers their cry by giving them Saul, who on the one hand is a judgment on them, and yet at the same time, it's God's way of saving them. When you realize that, you actually realize that God's ways are far more complex than we can ever imagine. You know, what God is doing in anyone's situation, far more complex than we could ever imagine. Because in this one act of giving them Saul, it's both a discipline and a mercy. It's both a punishment and compassion, which is a very good reminder to us that we do need to exercise a lot of caution when we try to interpret the things that happen in the world. You know, we know God is, governs all things, and yet we look at things and we think, You know, what's going on? Well, here's the answer. Lots of things. Okay, God is doing many things. Many things, more than we could ever understand. And so I think the best attitude that we should have when we think about God's providence and about the events and circumstances that happen in our lives and in, in the world, the best attitude that we can have is what Paul expresses at the end of Romans 11, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? See, there's a sense in which we could never know all of the things that God is working in the events of our lives and in the world. But what we do know and what this passage assures us, the only thing that we need to know is that he is the God of mercy and compassion, his tenderness toward his people. That's your assurance that whatever you face in life, whatever you see in the world, however confusing it might be, that the God who is ultimately in control is a God of tenderness and mercy, who always hears the cries of his people. And we can be confident that God is like that because he has proved it beyond doubt by sending his own son to die in your place, to save you from your sin, to reconcile you to himself. And when you know he has done that for you, you know that that his plan has to be good. You know that his love for you is always full. And therefore, in every providence, you can trust that he has a good purpose. And you can do that because you know he's tenderness his mercy displayed so wonderfully for us at the cross okay well let's let's pray